Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 115, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, this is a show where we bring out a new episode every single Friday, and happy Good Friday if you are celebrating today. And we just talk about classic video games that have helped shape our lives, classic systems, consoles, computers. The thing about it is at the moment, they seem to be coming back again. Oh, they're coming back in force, but they're coming back small, aren't they? <laughs> well, they are. Everything's got miniaturised recently. Yeah, a lot of mini systems coming through. We've got the mini NAS, the mini SNAS. Oh, God, the, the C64 mini. Do Just came out. Do you think they'd have a Game Boy mini? That would be tiny, wouldn't it? Play it with cocktail sticks. Yeah. <laughs> and the big news, of course, over the last week, you may have seen this, even about the Metro and stuff like that. We've known about this for a while, and it's not a product that's without its controversy. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about Atari's return in the oh, next Oh, yes, Atari are back, and they've, they've been back a few times, haven't they, actually? But <laughs> we hope this is the final um, kind of really good back, but we'll see. Well, it's crazy, though, that all these companies and products are making a comeback. What I think it proves is that retro gaming just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And these brands kind of stay in people's mind. You know, once you've played that game when you were a kid and you've kind of spent that much time on it, it, there's a part of your brain that's dedicated to Atari or something, you know. So it really is relevant. The fanboyism never goes away. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, you know what is insane is we keep getting approached by, like, mainstream media as well. Like, just today there's been a new article come out about us uh, that's featured in our local magazine, uh, well, local newspaper here in Nottingham, the Nottingham Post. Oh, yeah, and that's by Paul Jewelry as well, who's a wicked journalist from Retro Gamer. Talking about, you know, an evening newspaper here that's, like, read by your auntie and uncle and stuff like that who are interested in retro video games. That's how mainstream it's becoming now, so it is pretty crazy. And one thing I love about doing this show as well is that we get to speak to our heroes every single week. Now, the way the show works, if you are new to it, we're going to go through the uh, retro gaming news stories in the next few minutes. And then, normally around 20, 25 minutes into the show, we welcome on an industry veteran. And this week, I'm actually so excited about talking to this gentleman we've got on this week, because he was the co-founder of a company that pretty much shaped my childhood. Magnetic Fields? And before that, Mr. Chip Software. They Mr. Chips? Was that the guy from Catchphrase? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's any crossover there, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but this week we've got Andrew Morris. Now, he founded Magnetic Fields, uh, formerly Mr. Chip Software, in 1982 with Sean Southern, who was a legendary coder. Oh, legendary, definitely. Uh, and well, I got introduced to them because you know, I, I had a Commodore 16 Plus 4, was that my first machine, that was a bit of an underdog. But actually, they released some really good games on that platform. Well, all their games kind of pushed it to the limits. Yeah. You know, that that was the whole thing about Magnetic Fields. They had, like, Lotus games, and they were unbelievably fast, and you could do split-screen racing on them. And Kid Chaos, if you ever saw that, that was, like, Amiga's attempt at Sonic. Yeah, I and love it, that game. It ran as fast as Sonic. It was, it was very impressive. But you mentioned Lotus there, and I think, you know, in terms of historical kind of famous racing games... They were like the biggest series back in the early 90s, weren't they? Lotus Esprit Turbo Challenge, Lotus 2, Lotus 3. Yeah, and well, the fact that it was sponsored by Lotus. Yeah. And, you know, they had amazing music. The music was like just thumping beat, and you'd kind of get right pace with Lotus, wouldn't you? It, it would be on par with OutRun. Well, I think, you know, that's one thing we're going to ask Andrew about, because Lotus 2 was much more like an arcade kind of game, wasn't it? Mm. The first one had like pit stops and you had to refuel and all that. The second one was like pure arcade action. And like you said, it had that Barry Leach kind of yellow sampling soundtrack that was like, everyone remembers that. So I can't wait to get the story of Magnetic Fields and uh, Mr. Chip Software. We're talking, you know, games like the Lotus series, Supercars as well. That was incredible. Trailblazer, Rally Championship, pretty much from the, you know, earliest 8-bit systems, 1982 to 1999. 
And then I want to find out what happened to them because they kind of just faded away and yeah. didn't release anything for like 20 years. So Andrew Morris is going to be our special guest on the Retro Owl podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, what I do love about the fact that we're recording this show on like a, a Tuesday evening at half past seven is the fact that it is technically British summertime now. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't believe it, would you? I think that's raining. It is light outside yeah. <laughs> finally. So that does mean that summer isn't too far away. And we've got a packed summer this year with events. How many events are we doing? Oh, God, we're doing so many events. How many panels did we work out? I think it was over 19. It was 19 until we added two more events that we're doing now that we will <laughs> so be talking about. We, we haven't weeks. announced them all, but this is a, a crazy year for the Retro Hour. You can pretty much see us anywhere in the UK. Yeah. And also, you may be able to see us in Ireland soon as well. We'll talk more about that next week. But yeah, yeah that's exciting news. But the latest thing coming up is... With DJ Yoda. Now, so DJ Yoda is one of my all-time favourite DJs. I remember, do you remember the How to Cut and Paste CDs yeah, yeah, yeah. in the early and, 2000s? And he was kind of, he won the DMC and the Scratch DJ Awards, and he's on Aphrodite's label, Aphrodite Recordings. Now, Aphrodite did some justice, and some of the original kind of drum and bass tunes that were all made on the Amiga. Yeah. So DJ Yoda's doing the History of Video Games, which is at Nottingham Contemporary on the 27th of April. Well, I've managed to get it so that I'm going to be supporting DJ Yoda on two old school Amigas. <laughs> now, if you've never seen Ravi DJ before, I mean, you've done a few Facebook live streams, haven't you? Yeah, I'll probably be doing one before the event, actually. You can practice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the practice set. <laughs> uh, t- t- explain what your setup is then. What do you use? So I use two Amigas, and they're using this software which was made by Akira and Hoffman. Yeah. And it's called PT1210. And this basically emulates a kind of record deck. On the Amigas. Well, I, the name technique's 1210, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can use the old Pro Tracker modules in there, like loaded off disk. And it's really good because it's got time stretching. You know, you can change the beat on it and you can take in, in and out instruments and loop certain things. So it's kind of like a little rave machine, but it's all these dot mod tracks. Now, you all know about MP3, but dot mod was one of the old four channel formats. And, like um, in the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And hardly anyone's heard those tunes you know only amiga crazy people so i'm going to be playing these out in the public and uh, we'll see how they react well, i think dj yoda i remember i saw him live probably about 10 years ago at a festival and i think he played like some really hardcore dark jungle and mixed it into rick astley together forever <laughs> this <laughs> so. is it he's going to be mixing in old tv adverts and all of this kind of stuff and you know one of the quotes is like he's one of the top 10 djs to see before you die yeah and that's what q magazine say so and i don't uh, know about the support that's <laughs> <laughs> gonna say and ravi abbott as well yeah. uh so you're gonna be doing the warm-up slot then on this night which yeah, um yeah. it's pretty big gig actually mate it's, uh, you know, it's oh, pretty thank you. and uh, what i'm gonna try and do is connect the amigas up to the projectors mm-hmm. so we can have giant projectors of the output of what i'm doing on the trackers so people can kind of see this mad matrix tracker style <laughs> stuff and see all my mistakes probably you know. i'm sure there'll be none so uh yeah ravi will be doing a few uh, little uh, live streams on our facebook page if you haven't give us a like i mean you got loads of viewers last time you did one yeah. it was like christmas you did one wasn't it, it was, it was a, huge yeah, yeah I'm, a year ago. I'm gonna record all of this as well and mm-hmm. i'll be sharing it all over youtube and stuff but you can get tickets uh we've got the link in the description and it's through fatsoma yeah, and I think they're selling pretty quick, aren't they? So uh, they've already sold out um, the fir- first three releases, so it's on the final release now. Okay, cool. So if you want to get those, we'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our special interview this week with Andrew Morris, we want to say a massive, massive thank you to the people who support this show 
and put a little donation into our tip jar now. Obviously, we say if you want to make a little donation and help us into the running of the show, that's completely fine. That's, that's really appreciated. If you don't, totally understand, you know, it's up to you. But if you would like to make a donation, everything we get into our pot goes back into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. And we've made it dead easy. We've got a little PayPal link or even if you're into cryptocurrency, you can do that as well. Now, all you've got to do is nip onto our website. You'll find that on the front page of theretrohour.com. And just for making a donation of any amount, you'll earn your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, this week, we want to say thank you so much to Toby Philpot, Michael Verdi, Matthew Martin, and Sikkim Accountancy and Risk Management BV. No, oh, that was a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we often get with the company names like that. The person who, like, we've had a few of these, and Lord's message has gone, oh, I thought it was from my personal account, yeah. which is for the business plug. But he sent us a really nice message on there as well, saying how, you know, oh, he loves listening to the show and memories it brings back to you. So we do appreciate that. I didn't actually realise you can attach a note to PayPal payments as well. So oh, that's cool. Yeah, probably a load that we haven't read. So <laughs> get, get on the backlog, Dan. Go back to the last two years. Yeah. But thank you so much for your support, guys. It means a lot to us. And if you'd like to do the same, um, any donation, big or small, is really appreciated and helps us do the show every week for you. All you've got to do is nip onto our website, the Red. RetroHour.com. Now let's talk about this Atari box then. Do you remember when we first saw the trailer? It was like, what, back end of last year? Yeah, and they were saying that this is going to be an entire new console and it's going to play modern games as well and be able to compete with the modern systems. Uh, and it looked really nice. Well, there was that kind of 3D animation teaser they released at first. I had like the flyover. Mm-hmm. And this is, it looks like it's made out of plastic, but it's kind of got that kind of false wood grain kind of looks. It looks a bit like the original, you know, Woody, Atari 2600. Well, this week, apparently they were at GDC showing it off. They weren't really at GDC, (laughs) were they, though? Because this is the thing. I've seen news reports and everyone's saying they were there, but they're in a hotel room. Okay. They've hired a hotel room next to it and they've kind of put up a, a banner and a few Atari things and a cap and showing their device. Um... Yeah, so, so you can't really say they're there. <laughs> they're, they're, they're tagging onto the side of it. <laughs> they bought tickets for GDC, in other words. <laughs> but there have been quite a lot of like publications that have picked up. I know, it, it, I look at these articles, and I get the impression journalists are really trying to think of something to say about totally, it. Totally, because I, I read one the other day, and the best thing someone said was that they could come out with an Atari cap. Oh, and like the, the whole place was just there because of the name Atari. There was nothing else that kind of attracted what, a baseball them. cap. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Well, at least there are some nice new high resolution photos. Now I'm going to link up to an article here in a Slash Gear. Um, it's titled Atari VCS. Here's what we know so far. Now there is a picture there. I've got to say the controller that appears to be with it. There is kind of one that looks like the old original one button Atari joystick. But there is also one that looks a bit like kind of a, an Xbox 360 controller. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one, isn't it, that? Because it's got a 360 one, but then it's got two thumbsticks. And uh, is that a D-pad in yeah. there as well? It looks like one. Well, that kind of goes with what we've heard about the, you know, it's now called the Atari VCS. I've renamed it now, like the original console. It's no longer the Atari box. But apparently, even though they're at this uh, hotel room in GDC, nobody saw it up and running. They no, didn't let yeah. anyone play on it. So... I'm not even sure whether, you know, there are some pictures of it here, what looks like a hotel room, but that could be, I mean, that could just be a mock. Well, it's weird because I was looking at these hotel room pictures and I saw in the corner a uh, roller coaster tycoon studio okay. uh, on the bottom photo. So I'm not sure if they did have something running or not. Well, from what we know about it, 
I mean, there are some very scant kind of technical details that have been released. That apparently it's going to be an AMD X86 processor. Okay. Kind of comparable to a high-end PC laptop in terms of performance, they reckon. Um, they reckon it's going to be able to do 4K. It will be able to play some PC games, but they haven't confirmed whether like Steam and GOG and that kind of stuff will be available on it yet. Uh, there will be some classic Atari games on there as well with a proprietary UI to access games. Okay, so it might be like a system where you could just, you know, install Windows and put Steam on it and then run other stuff. Or, or there might be, you know, it could have good potential for hacks. You could, yeah. you could have a dual boot, couldn't you, or something like that. But you know what it reminds me of? I'm, I think in the Ouya straight away. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, because there was a lot of hype with the Ouya and it really didn't live up to it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's strange that they've changed the name as well because I thought Atari Box was quite a good name. Uh, but I think they're obviously trying to look at... They're trying to trade on nostalgia here, aren't they, yeah. with it? The thing about it is, and I was watching a video by Review Tech USA the other day, who's a YouTuber I watched, and he kind of did a bit of a rant about this. And he mentioned quite an interesting fact that, you know, they're probably trying to trade on the success of the SNES and NES Mini and all that kind of thing. But I'm not really... I don't I agree with him in this video. I'm not really sure the nostalgia for Atari's franchises is big enough to warrant releasing them to a new market. What, like the individual ones? Yeah, like Millipede and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I reckon if it was an arcade unit, that Man, you, yeah. that a mini arcade that you could have all this stuff on, that that would really appeal. But, uh, yeah, home. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, you think of like N Nintendo got like Mario and Zelda and famous franchises. I mean, the stuff that was on Atari, I mean, they were great back in the day, but I must admit, and, you know, I might get a bit of flaming for this, I actually, even though I've got like kind of clones of old Atari consoles, I don't find a lot of interest in its library anymore. It doesn't really well, hold my attention. Well, if they had stuff like the later libraries as well, so they had stuff like, you know, Jaguar games yeah. and stuff like that, that could be interesting. Although I doubt it from what I've seen. I mean, you know, it could happen, but I think they're really trying to look at, you know, the Atari VCS 2600. But really. if we don't see them playing it, then how, you know, <laughs> whatever's going to be on it, you know, so... But, you know, I, and the prices I've heard quoted for it, that it's going to be about 350 to $399. And generally when you get kind of, especially with the pound being weaker these days, you generally find that that's well, going to translate to pounds. How as well, much is you? the Xbox One can you get that for? I saw one in CEX the other day. You know, the white, slimmer Xbox yeah. One, they're selling that for 200 pounds. Okay, so, yeah. So <laughs> I think new they're about 300 350 now. So you're competing head-on with Sony and Microsoft. Mm. And that's not a good place to be. No, they, uh, maybe they should go for the uh, smaller, just little machine mini cheap, you know. <laughs> I don't know. That's the thing. But it's like, you know, are you going to spend $350 to play that Missile Command? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit of a well, tough Well, we'll sell. wait for one person to buy it and review it on eBay, <laughs> on YouTube. And well, what they really need to do, though, is kind of show this working, though, because it's looking like vaporware at the minute from a lot of, you know, reports I've seen. And, you know, people are making comparisons to, like, the, you know, Coleco Chameleon and stuff like that, which there's been so much of that in the retro industry over the last year. It's a bad bad trap to fall into. Yeah, they could have spent some money on a stand. If you want to come to any gaming shows here in the summer this year, you know, in the UK, we're going to be at lots of them. Give us a shout. Maybe we can get that sorted out. So I hope it does succeed, because I'd love to see Atari making a comeback. But And it looks sexy. It does. To be honest. I mean, if it was, like, 100, 199 quid, I might get one. But 350 it Unless it had, like, the the performance of a high-end PC, maybe, and had Steam yeah. and all that on, maybe, but I think it's going to be a tough sell, but, you know, we'll wait and see. Now, one of my all-time favourite games is making a comeback on my favourite console at the moment. Flashback is oh. getting a physical edition celebrating its 25th anniversary 
on the Nintendo Switch. Oh, well, this is the bonus of my girlfriend moving. I can steal a Switch. <laughs> you haven't got it, have you? Yeah. Have you? <laughs> and installing uh, all these kind of games. Like, Flashback was absolutely amazing. It was rotoscope graphics, wasn't yeah. it? Where they kind of trace around the person and then, you know... Well, they captured video, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they captured his video. What was that Prince of Persia before it? That was the same, wasn't it? Same kind of thing. But I loved that game. And it was kind of in the same vein as Another World as well, those kind of two early 90s. They kind of felt like playing a movie. It, it was, they? but it was also incredibly popular. It was all over all systems. It was on, like, the Mega Drive, I remember that. And, you know, it kind of it felt a bit Jurassic Parky to me. Right? I had that kind of, like, look. In the forest and stuff yeah, like that at yeah. the beginning. But even later on, I mean, when I read about this the other day, because I remember it had that really, like, kind of smooth animation and the soundtrack was incredible. And it was... I read this article, like, last weekend. I thought, I haven't played Flashback for ages. So I booted it up and had a little play. Um, and I played it actually probably for about two hours and I got quite into it. The later levels are kind of a bit like Blade Runner kind of levels. Well, there's loads of little and... bits. Do you have to, like, throw stones in it? I yeah, the beginning yeah, you do, because yeah. that was... In Metal Gear Solid later on, you had a whole kind of stone distraction thing. And I was like, oh, flashback stones, yeah. And you have to get the guards to, like, come through doors and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's really strategic, isn't it? And even at the end, I think you're on, like, some alien planet and there's kind of, like, things that look a bit like the blob that come along and get you. <laughs> like, great animation. And it was a game that, you know, really captured my attention as a kid. And apparently it was um, quite inspired by Total Recall, you know, the movie. Oh, like, yeah, a lot of wicked in- film. Inspired in there. So what they're actually doing is, now, this is, they're calling it the 25th anniversary because it was, um, the, the SNES version came out in 1993. I think the Amiga version was a year before. So they can call it 25 years because it's actually the SNES version they've bundled in here as well. But there are apparently some kind of upgrades to it too. Um, they've got like a modern mode, they're calling, with like some stuff like a tutorial in there as well. Oh. I've been able to rewind your mistakes if you make them, you know, a few little things that might, might make it a bit more accessible. Like save states and stuff like that. So we're in the original game, you get like little save machines that you kind of walk up to. But Flashback, is it's a brutal game. Yeah, <laughs> really challenging. It's not a platformer that you can just kind of bomb it through, you know. But it's one life, isn't it? If yeah. you die, then you come back. But they did actually do like a, a modern kind of HD update to Flashback about four or five years ago, do you remember? Yeah, I think so, because I actually had for the Wii U. Okay. I had a, a version of Flashback. Yeah. I got it on 360, and I bought that without reading any of the reviews. I played it for about two minutes. I was like, this is pants. <laughs> no, I couldn't play any of it. And the reviews were terrible. It got like one stars and everything. But what I like about this is, I mean, it's a dangerous thing messing with nostalgia, as we know. But I think the way they're doing this is really good. You can either play the original version as it was on your Switch or they give you a few modern creature comforts. Yeah, that, that's what I like. I like two modes. Like, you know, in Sonic Generations, you had two modes where you could go old school or new school. And it's like, if you really don't like the new school, just stick with the old one. You yeah. Know? yeah, it gives you the option. And it means you haven't wrecked the original game. Well, was that Monkey Island? You know, they did the SE releases that, didn't they? And like, you could either go back to old graphics or play the new one. But, I mean, I love the fact they're giving this a physical release as well. And it looks like it comes with like some really cool kind of add-ons in there as well, including some it looks a bit like a SNES cartridge, weirdly enough. So uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. It's not out till June, but if you want to get your pre-orders in and stuff, I'll, you know, that'll be a day one purchase for me. We'll link you up in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, a story we didn't really cover all that much because it was kind of breaking, you know, a couple of weeks before we did shows and stuff recently, but this weekend will mark the final weekend of Toys R Us in many regions. Well, it's awful, actually. We've, we've had a massacre of yeah. kind of shops recently. It's, uh, what was it, Woolworths was the first to go, and now we've had Maplins recently, and now Toys R Us. Well, if I play this, how much nostalgia 
comes back to you, just from hearing this. Tons, especially my dad saying, you're not going. (laughs) (laughs) No good memories, Ed. (laughs) But it just reminds me, Christmas time as a kid when this had come on TV. Yeah, I I remember it, and it was kind of like a dream world that I was never allowed to go to, (laughs) because... If you go into Toys R Us, you would spend a lot of money, wouldn't you? Yeah, your parents' money. Yeah. You know, I did see an article the other day, a little post actually on Twitter. Someone got, what's going to happen to Jeffrey now? And images would be like homeless and stuff. <laughs> Poor Jeffrey. But, you know, Toys R Us, it was as a kid. So the thing is, I've seen all this outburst recently. People going, oh, it's an outrage, it's going. And there is actually um, a really good post here in the Miami Herald of all places talking about the fact that nostalgia has triggered grief at the closure of Toys R Us. Well, I, I don't know. It's weird for me because uh, Toys R Us would seem very American. And especially when you were watching stuff like Home Alone and, uh, you know, when he's trapped in those big American toy stores. We didn't have those before. We had, like, BTs and stuff like that, but that was more hobbies and toys. But these giant American toy warehouses, that's when they kind of arrived. So, yeah, it's a bit weird because I wasn't really that much of a fan of Toys R Us. I was just like... It's a horrible-looking building for the toys, you know. <laughs> well, it was a warehouse, essentially, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But I do remember, you know, for video games, it was actually pretty good. Well, you might get a bargain then, because they're, they're, they're closing down, aren't they, now? So it would be sales everywhere. I imagine, well, I think there's like a couple of days left at the time recording this. A lot of them are closing this weekend, I think, the Easter weekend. But I imagine the shelves are probably all bare now if there's any sales on it, if I'm honest. But they do make an interesting point here that when was the last time you went to Toys R Us? Oh, God, uh, to, to, to buy a Tamagotchi, that, honestly, that was it. <laughs> what, 1995 or something? Yeah. <laughs> I think I bought a bike from there when I was at university. <laughs> so it was like the nearest place to my uni in Lincoln. But, <laughs> I thought you meant a kid's bike. You no, you know, they did adult bikes as well. <laughs> <laughs> but people are saying here the reason that everyone's getting upset about the closure of Toys R Us, even though the fact that they're blatantly closing down because they haven't got enough customers, everyone goes to like Asda or Walmart or Amazon. Which, online, yeah. Yeah, Amazon has been their biggest competitor. Well, Smithy's Toys as well in uh, the UK, that's quite big. Well, they're saying here, though, the reason that everyone's getting upset is because it kind of feels like a part of your childhood's died. Yeah, yeah, I think it's all associated with... It's all wound in with those American kind of uh, consumerist films that we got and, you know, that kind of idea of, oh, it's Christmas, going to get millions of presents and all of this. And Well, it's even here in the advert, on t- you know, the advert we played then. For me, I remember sitting there, you know, even though, again, like, like you said, then we didn't actually go to Toys for Us all that much. It more be like sitting there with the Argos catalogue circling the toys yeah, that yeah, yeah, dreaming about it. <laughs> but, but like for me, that was as much, you know, the advert and that music. So brought it back, didn't they, a few years ago? That was a part of Christmas, like the holidays are coming, Coca-Cola advert. Music yeah, was. yeah, totally. And not hearing that now, it's like kind of, it does feel like a, a bit your childhood's gone, even though no one's been in the shops for like how many years? It's like... So it's like with it's, it's exactly the same with Maplins as well. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. People want these things to be on the high street, but they don't necessarily want to use them. They just want it there for when they've got an emergency. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what you got till it's gone, I think was the, the old song, wasn't it? So goodbye, Toys R Us. You will be missed. And of course, we did have sad news that um, Charles Lazarus, who founded Toys R Us, passed away last yeah, week. Yeah, I well. saw that. That was all over the news as well, wasn't it? Yeah, a bit sad that, it, you know, he kind of got to see his company fold as well. But, 
you know, he was 94 years old, had a good innings, didn't he? Yeah. So, and obviously founded one of the most legendary companies. So, thank you, Charles, and thank well, you, Toys Well, R- it's strange, all the kind of toys and connections with video games, you know, Chuck E. Cheese and Nolan Bushnell and all that. That's been quite a big crossover, I guess, isn't there? Yeah, Tom Kalinske and He-Man. That might be an episode one, one time, or a video for you, Ravi, because I know your YouTube channel's uh, back on track again recently. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm doing one a week, can you believe it? I saw you uh, cleaning a keyboard the other day for about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, people love those cleaning videos, you know, just getting rid of dirt. It's like something satisfying. Have you ever watched videos of people jet washing cobbles or, uh, no, paving slabs? Who was oh it? Oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> is it like Retro Man Cave used to do quite a few, uh, no, it's not, I'm thinking, 8-Bit Guy, he used to do some way to spray stuff with a hose and that, didn't yeah. he? Cleaning stuff in his garden. I know what you mean, though. It's I, I do like the satisfaction of seeing something like, Trash to treasure kind of stuff, yeah. isn't it? You know, um, I did mention Retro Man Cave there because he's our guest next week on the Ooh. podcast. So if you're a fan, definitely hang around for that. Now, before we get into this week's guest, Andrew Morris, one of your all-time favourite games, is also celebrating its 25th anniversary with flashback Simon the Sorcerer. Oh, Simon the Sorcerer. Now, Simon the Sorcerer is fantastic. I, I don't know if J.K. Rowling basically played Simon the Sorcerer before she did Harry Potter, uh-huh. but it's very similar. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of a boy wizard, you know? Um, really good game that came out for the Amiga and they had a PC version which later came which was Simon 2 and then that kind of later got a release on the Amiga but the best thing for me was it had a it was a massive Red Dwarf fan yeah. and it had Chris Barry doing the kind of voice for it so it's hilarious you know having Rimmer as the voice of Simon the Sorcerer yeah there was like a talky release of it wasn't there and it was beautiful. The art on it was so well drawn. Uh, Adventuresoft did it. And, you know, the colours and the graphics were amazing, but so was the storyline. It was one of these old-style point-and-clicks. It was around the same time as, like, you know, Broken Sword. It was at Monkey Island. and Monkey Island 2, I think, was around then, wasn't it? Yeah. But they were incredibly captivating games, especially then. I mean, I think they were just full of charm as well, weren't they? And it's as a kid, you'd really get your imagination flowing. Yeah, the humour in it was hilarious. I remember there was this whole thing about woodworms and them yeah. being racist <laughs> against balsa wood or oak wood. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Well, what is crazy is the fact that, you know, this is 25 years old now. So many of our favourite games are celebrating their like anniversaries at the moment, aren't they? So they're getting re-releases. Well, there's going to be a special uh, anniversary edition of Sam and the Sorcerer 1 and 2. So it's both games, uh, Sam and the Sorcerer 1 and 2, coming out on the 3rd of April. They're going to be releasing this on Steam and GOG. And and they've kind of done, like, new, again, like like the flashback release, kind of tweaked it a bit so modern audiences can get their head around it a little bit better. So apparently it's going to have, like, new gameplay controls that they've kind of built from the ground up. You know, before you had to kind of hunt for pixels and stuff. Apparently it's going to be more, like, hotspot-based on the screen. Okay. And they're updating some of the animations and stuff, too. They're going to have, like, right-click quick actions in there as well. Um, Easy ways to save your games. There's also going to be, like, a new HD graphics mode that upscales it to, like, 1080p as well. Yeah, because I'm looking at the graphics at the moment and actually it looks like with the HD stuff, they kind of do this thing where they remove all the pixels but they just put like a, a blurred smear Anti-aliasing on Anti-aliasing. Yeah, thing. yeah, and it just doesn't look right to me. Well, I can't, um, you, you can't play with the original music oh, and that, original that, graphics good. and all that yeah. if you want. So, uh, even the original controls, again, it's Original like, speed as well because, my God, Simon walking across the map, that could take a day. <laughs> <laughs> you could have like a cup of tea, a meal, walk the dog and he'd be on the other side. We had a lot more patience back then, didn't yeah. we? I was the same playing like Monkey Island. Do you remember, you know, Monkey Island when you'd walk out the village and you got the map of everywhere. Yeah. You got the different places. On that, like clicking that, it'd take him like four or five minutes to walk across <laughs> sometimes if you find the right place you can double click it you'd run but yeah it's like you know obviously we had nothing else to do back in the day but yeah. you know it is a bit of a tough choice you need to have the 
the full-on modern version, or you can play it like you used to if you've got a spare weekend. Play it old school. But I wonder what's going to come next. So many games are celebrating anniversaries at the moment, so it will be quite interesting. If you guys have got like some favourite games you think should make a comeback, you know, maybe we can track down the original creators and suggest it. Uh, how about Rise of the Robots, 25th edition? <laughs> I, I actually dare a developer to try and track down Rise of the Robots, so it's going to re-release that. You know, it, it could finally get vindicated, they could make it good. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if anyone's... Is <laughs> good mode or old mode. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's up to the challenge, yeah, do get in touch. Show at theretrohour.com if you ever want to say hello to us. And, of course, you can tweet us at RetroHourUK. We're on Instagram, been posting on there quite a bit this week too. Uh, Facebook. Discord uh, as well, we're all over the place. Yeah, and that's growing massively. Loads of people in there, all hours of the day, I see. Yeah, it's, it, I go on it and I look one minute and then I'm like, 42 messages, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> I see my phone light up at like three in the morning sometimes, but I put it on, do not disturb yeah, it's actually, actually I left it in the bedroom the other day and it was going mental with Discord <laughs> at night and my girlfriend was like, turn that phone off! <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you do go on, it might be an idea just to wear mute notifications yeah. as well, it get quite busy. But we'd love you to join us in there and get all the links on the website, theretrohour.com. But that's been this week's news and now let's get into this week's special guest talking about classic games like Lotus, Kickstart, Kid Chaos, the story of Magnetic Fields. This week's special guest is Andrew Morris. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and let's welcome on this week's very special guest. Thank you for joining us, Andrew Morris. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Now, we're going to get some stories from, uh, you know, classic games that we remember playing, like the Lotus games, Kid Chaos, Kickstart was one of my all-time favourites as well. Uh, but it might be quite nice just to get a little bit of background on you, Andrew. I mean, where, where did you, like, first start with computers and gaming? Do you remember, like, your earliest kind of memory? Uh, it was the ZX81, so it, I, I'd have been about, uh, about 10, I think, and uh, someone at school bought one. And then I got one soon after and basically learned, uh, learned programming on that and uh, the basics of computing. Uh, and then graduated to a Spectrum and a Commodore 64 and then eventually over to the Amiga. Well, what kind of games were you into when you were really young though, when you first started? Uh, well, in the very early days, or the ZX81, it, it was less about games and more about the programming and just playing around with the thing. Uh, pr- probably on the spectrum, it was probably Manic Miner. Uh, obviously, the Commodore 64 had a lot of great games, uh, Paradroid and all, all sorts of uh, all sorts of stuff in the Commodore 64. Um, so, yeah, I, I used to like racing games and platform games. That they were probably what I enjoyed the most. Well, how did you and Sean Southern meet? Uh, well, I left school uh, wanting to get into computer games. And there was a local company who were called Mr. Chip Software, um, and Sean worked with them. So um, on a, a YTS scheme, I, I joined uh, Mr. Chip and met Sean there, and then we quickly started working together. I originally started as a programmer and wasn't very good at programming. I didn't particularly enjoy it and preferred the design and, and graphics element. So Sean and I started working together as games became a bit more professional, and, and it took, uh, took two people to design them. Um, and then we, we moved from there to Magnetic Fields. Um, so, yeah, we worked together pr- probably for about uh, the best part of 15 years. Which games were you working on when you first joined Mr Chip then? Do you remember like the early titles you worked on? Oh, there was, there was, there was loads, uh, lots of budget games, uh, things that roll around. Uh, Kickstart 2 was the first full game I had a big uh, design influence on and designed all the graphics for, but I was doing lots of loading screens and, and character sets and random characters 
and um, little bits and pieces that were needed for various for various games. Uh, so it, it was it was uh, primarily all the budget games that that uh, that Mr. Chip were doing there, and there was a lot of them. I remember uh, we we catered for, for the Commodore 16, C16, and the 64. Uh, and I think at one time we had the, the whole top 10 C16 games were Mr. Chip games. So there was a lot happening. We had, we had quite a few programmers uh, and a lot of them weren't very good at graphics. So I was, I was doing more, all sorts of things for all of the games that we were putting out at the time. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Commodore 16 because that was when I first got introduced like to, you know, you and Sean's games. It was, um, I had a Commodore Plus 4, that was my first machine. And it doesn't surprise me you had the top 10 because, you know, Good software on the Commodore 16 and Plus 4 was a bit few and far between at that time. Yeah. But you guys yeah. did some amazing stuff on there. I remember like Bandits at Zero, um, Trailblazer, I think the first version of that was on the Commodore 16, wasn't it? Uh, let me think. Uh, I think we did it on the Commodore 64 first, and mm. then there was, a, there was a C16 version, uh, and then we did a sequel on the Commodore 64, um, the Cosmic Causeway. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, I, I mean, we were very prolific, and Sean in particular, he was a very fast programmer he, he, he could knock a, a game in a couple of weeks which he had to really because the sales were were very they were microscopic and they, they within a week or two the games were being pirated so there wasn't a lot of money to be made well i do remember the version of kickstart on the commodore 16 was you know i think recently actually it kind of got a homebrew port to the commodore 64 because it was very different to the 64 version um but it was actually a lot of people regarded it as being a better game. I mean, was the 16 and Plus 4 quite a hard platform to develop for compared to like the 64 and other? More yeah, it, well, it didn't have the sprites, I remember. So, so you had to go about it in a different way. Um, and I think we, we did a different style of game because, because of the technical differences. Um, and then we, 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 we did try to do a more grown-up version of Kickstart uh, on the Commodore 64 uh, Super Scramble Simulator, which we, we tried to, to take it in another direction again. Um, and that, that appeared on the Amiga as well, but n- not such a, a big hit as Kickstart was. Well, you did some uh, racing games, Speed King and Formula One Simulator. Were they hard to do on such limited software? Um, I didn't have a lot to do with Formula One Simulator. Um, I, I think Sean just very quickly built up uh, a few routines that that, that uh, he would use for racing games and platform games, uh, and uh, we'd, we'd, we'd sort of t- tend to do similar uh, you know, similar concepts. Uh, obviously, the machines are fairly limited as well. How, how much you could you could do with them? So we, we fairly quickly we were pushing them to their limit and it was down to imagination of what what sort of ideas you could come up with well originally mr chip self-published their games um in the very early days yeah that was actually slightly before my time i think a lot of it was mail order um and then as the um industry matured uh, and bigger publishers appeared um some of those older games that were republished by i think mastertronic um, and then, um, yeah, that, then we became, uh, 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 we, we, well, we, did, we, we very quickly moved out of uh, publishing. I think Mr. Chip Software pretty much ceased self-publishing when I joined. Well, what was the relationship with Mastertronic like? It, it was pretty good. Um, yeah, we, we worked with them for years. Uh, I can't remember why we actually stopped. Um, it was probably, I think we, we wanted to do more ambitious games, bigger games, so yeah, I think it was just where we where we wanted to go with the with the project. So I, I, in many ways, they, they started to get a bit too ambitious. So it, you couldn't really spend more than a year when we got to the Amiga 
you spent more than a year, it was unlikely you were ever going to make any money out of it. And I think the last thing we did on the Amiga was uh, Kid Chaos. And that took two years. Uh, and it was just, it was a financially, it was just a disaster. Um, so we are probably, in many ways, we were better off doing the very quick, uh, a month, six weeks, uh, through Mastertronic, get the games out quickly, make a little bit of money, move on quickly. That, that It wasn't such a, uh, you were never going to get rich, but it wasn't such a bad model. Well, Mastertronic were famous for the one nine nine range, weren't they? Which, you know, kids could afford out their pocket money, which was one bonus, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they could, but they, they were still pirate them anyway because you can't really get cheaper than pirating games. So, <laughs> so even even at one ninety nine, you can imagine the royalty at a one ninety nine game was almost insignificant. So uh, even on a successful game, you, you'd, you'd make a few thousand pounds. You'd you'd have to you'd have to have several games out in a year to make to make a, a reasonable income. I knew other people who were. They would, they would do other things, so, so um, but just doing the computer games wasn't enough to, to bring in an income. Well, would you have to kind of realise that a, a big percentage of your income, or a section of it, is going to be taken away by piracy, especially with the Amiga? And... Yeah, well, it just, we just got used to it, really. Um, so it became more and more of a problem. It was pro- in many ways, it was. Uh, I, I think you could probably argue it was what killed the Amiga, that when we did our last game, uh, we got a small forward from Ocean, and there was never any royalties. Just it just died immediately. That the, the I think it was the the day after release, someone sent us a pirated copy, and we knew that we were never going to make any money out of it. They were just spread, uh, and no one was actually going to buy it. That must have been pretty heartbreaking, though. I guess it was after after two years, uh, particularly with the uh, in, with the case of Kid Chaos. Uh, it was it was a labour of love. I remember long, long days and evenings designing it. It was a huge, huge game that took uh, four discs, it was, which was massive. I think the, the most we'd done before that was two discs for Lotus 3, uh, and this is four discs uh, of work. Uh, and it, it was it just it was t- two years and working evenings on something that uh, it was it was really well-crafted. We put a huge amount of effort into it, and uh, it just it did nothing financially. It was, it was, uh, it was just a, a huge flop. So I think that's one thing that, you know, probably the more we think about it today, you know, a lot of people that maybe did pirate games back in the day probably do feel guilty when they hear stories, like, you know, from, from people that were involved there and actually made a loss on it. But, you know, you remember, like, kids coming to school and the day that, you know, they discovered cassette-to-cassette copying yeah. was a thing, and it was like, whoa. It, like, you know, as a kid, you just, like, like you said, nothing comes cheaper than, like, you know, doing it yourself in that way, I guess. Yeah, I, I think part of the problem, also, in some ways, I mean, I knew plenty of people who pirated games. It was difficult not to, but... You tended, to, I think, when you bought a game, you made more effort to to play it and to treat it seriously. Whereas when you had an endless supply of free games, sometimes you didn't really you didn't really play them properly or look at them properly because there, there was very little value associated with them. Well, you did mention a Super Scramble Simulator before, and that, that was your last eight bit um, game that that you released on those systems at the C sixty four. And that was it was quite similar to Kickstart in many ways. Why wasn't that not a Kickstart game? Why was it not part of the series? Uh, I think we discussed it, um, but um, it, it, when I, I had a lot of ideas for Kickstart 2, and a lot of them I realised weren't going to work really with the Kickstart uh, 2 concept. Um, one of the ideas behind um, Super Scramble, uh, I used to play a game in the arcades called uh, Super Locomotive, uh, which had a top view. It was a way of, uh, of having a t- kind of 3, 3D in that you could see the side view and the top view together to give an extra dimension to the to the way the game played, and I, and I thought that would work well with a bike game. 
so 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 that that's sort of where the idea came from. It was loosely based on the super locomotive arcade game, um, and there was lots of extra ideas I had for for obstacles that I thought would work better with bigger graphics, and and, and it, was, it was meant to be more of a, uh, an accurate simulation and less of an arcade game. But um, uh, the, the, the Commodore 64 version was 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 okay, and uh, the, the Amiga version was just uh, pretty much a disaster. The the programmer on that one. Uh, became incredibly good at playing it, so set the difficulty levels uh, ridiculously high, and no one could play it. So it went out, and 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 it was a, it was that was a disaster. Well, what was the transition to sixteen bit like then after the eight bit machines kind of faded away? Um, I'd made a, a partial transition in that I was I was as soon as we got an Amiga, which is probably a couple of years before we started producing games, I was already working on graphics and uh and j- just playing around with it so so i got quite used to it and i really wanted to design games on it um i think the first thing we did was i think i think it was a version of a 8-bit game roll around um i think i think oh, that's right it was called wrangler on the on the on the amiga and the st and that was a transitional game where we we, we upgraded it uh and then i think the first proper game we did i think was supercars i think um and yeah, it was it was great. I mean, once once we moved to that, it was uh, I didn't really want to go back to working on a eight uh, bit anymore. What graphics tools were you using at the time? Uh, on the Amiga, it was, was D Paint. On the Commodore sixty four, it was the uh, Koala Pad. Yeah, cla- I mean, people probably couldn't have done their jobs without <laughs> those bits of software about that. I guess no, that they, they were they were fantastic, uh, and uh, it, it was very much you were designing with pixels. Uh, so when we mo- eventually moved to things like Photoshop much later, it was a very different way of designing graphics. It was less about worrying about, literally worrying about individual pixels, which particularly on the 8-bit was you designed in pixels and thought in pixels. Uh, and it was, there was less of that on the Amiga. And then by the time we got to Photoshop, um, you, you just didn't view it like that. It was more like uh, manipulating images and, and not worrying about pixels it was it was it was there was a, a huge transition there from 8 bits through all the way over to photoshop with the amiga sort of in the middle well supercars was a really great top down racer what was the kind of story of these games and how did they come about uh supercars uh, i mean it's not an incredibly original idea there were other top down racers uh, we i think we almost released one on 8 bits i think we half designed the graphics for it that they're on a website somewhere and um and then scrapped it so there, there were a few top down races uh with that one um i had i had the idea of, of rather than just having the racing aspect i wanted a bit more strategy um and it, it was part of the ideas were loosely taken from ghostbusters on, on the um the Commodore 64, a game that I really enjoyed when I was in school, but I liked the way you could p- pick up little extra things, uh, and um, so that, that's where the idea of um, we- weaponizing your car and adding uh, adding different things to the car, uh, so it, be- it became a little bit more of a trading game, expanded into a trading game, particularly as it, uh, when we moved on to um, Supercars 2, we we went even more in that direction. From my memory, it seemed to have a car in there that looked a bit like a Alfa Romero SZ. Were they kind of based on like real car models, or were they? That just... could be the case. Yeah, and <laughs> some people say, uh, "What was another one that the um, 
Oh, so there the, the, the was that. So I, I suppose they were loosely based on um, cars of the time. There was a, a Marauder, I think, was another concept car, and um, yeah, there, there was a, there was a few things in there. But with the, with the, the original version of Lotus, actually had something that looked very much like a Porsche in it. So all the graphics uh, were sort of based on a Porsche. And uh, when we took it to Gremlin, it was it was more than half finished. Uh, that they had the Lotus license, so so the the car that looked very much like a Porsche and all the front end screens, they they went and they were replaced with with the uh, Lotuses. Well, how did you team up with Gremlin then, and what was it like to work with them? Um, let me see. I, I think the first game we did with them was Trailblazer. Um, that was not long after I joined Mr. Chip. Um, and then they put out supercars. I, I think we went to them uh, because we we, want, we wanted to move into full price games, and, and they were our best full price uh, publisher contacts. So, so we automatically went to them with with supercars. Um, uh, I think Wrangler before supercars was put out in a budget label. I forget which one now. Um, so, we, we, but we we definitely wanted to move into more ambitious more quality games, bigger games that would take more time to produce. Uh, so, so uh, yes, we were supercars. We took it to Gremlin, and that was the uh, start of uh, quite a long-lasting relationship. Uh, I think it was uh, quite a few years we were with Gremlin. Well, there was often cameos in your games, like in uh, Supercars 2, you had Nancy Allen from Robocop. Uh, were there any Easter eggs or... Cameos uh, oh, that you remember? There was loads. We 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 loved doing that. Uh, there was always hidden. Uh, I, I forget how many we we had. That uh, there was endless little. Uh, I think all the Lotus games had a hidden game. Um, pod, it was Pod, uh, a, a, a new version of a uh, an eight bit game we did. We did a sixteen version, sixteen bit version of Pod, and included that. I think that was in the first or second Lotus. So Duck Shoot. A Vic Twenty game that we did that was in one of the Lotus games. I think um, there was there was hidden things in Supercars One and Two. Uh, I, I think at the you, you clicked on the sky. I think in, in the first Supercars, it, it told you about global warming. There was just all, all sorts of strange little things in there. Cheats. Uh, we we carried on that, that through with the right through to the rally games. There was hidden cars in the in the rally games. Um, uh, Kid Chaos had uh, you could play all the little end of level games as individual games in their own right. Um, there was all sorts of cheats in there. Um, that pr- probably too many things for me to remember. As a kid, though, it was amazing discovering those, or you'd read about them in like a friend's magazine, and you couldn't wait to get home and try it out. Yeah, well, it, it was it was it became something. We, we started doing it. We always enjoyed doing it, and we did it more and more because there was a certain. Uh, schedule of you'd get your previews maybe then the full preview then the review and it was a way of, of keeping the the game in the magazines so you'd you'd do you'd do uh, maps and then you might do secret codes uh, and you you just kept the the game in the, in the in the magazine by having all these extra things uh, and it was it was just fun because I used to enjoy it myself when I when I find hidden hidden messages or hidden you know hidden hidden games so it, it was definitely something we enjoyed doing. Well, we've kind of teased on it a bit already, but, you know, we need to talk properly about Lotus now because you think back to, like, the early 90s, they were the, the most fam- infamous racing game series around at the time. And, well, let's talk a bit about the first game, Lotus Esprit Turbo Challenge. What was the original story of the game and how did it come to be? Uh, well, I loved 
uh, I loved racing games. I played racing games in, in the arcade a lot. Again, it's not a massively original concept uh, that, that people have done that plenty of times before. And I, I'd enjoyed uh, Pit Stop 2 on the Commodore 64 and played things, uh, Outrun or you know, all the usual arcade games. So I wanted to do that type of game. Uh, and, I, and I had some ideas about how it would work and how it would play. Uh, and after Supercars, um, Sean wanted to do uh, an arcade game, which I think I, I still have the graphics for somewhere. Um, so I put the Lotus idea uh, on the back burner, and then we we, we worked on the, the shoot-em-up game. Uh, after about a, a month, it just didn't seem to feel right. It just didn't click. It wasn't wasn't going anywhere. Uh, so we went back to the to the Lotus idea, and Sean said if he could come up with a, a fast road routine that 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 would run at um, uh, on I think it was 50, 50 frames, so it would be very smooth, very fast. If he could write a routine that did that, which would be the basis of the game, then we would do it. So he went away for the weekend and then came back and he, he had a, this this uh, this moving road. It was just a, a, a road that turned left, right, up, down, and that would that would then form the basis of, of the of the the game. Uh, so we moved ahead with that. Then I think we spent about nine months. I think it was on the on the first one. Um, and uh, I think Gremlin got involved about halfway through. Um, we took it to them when we had something playable with some graphics in there, and they, they loved it immediately, told us that they'd, they'd just acquired a Lotus license, but were looking for something to do with it, asked me if I'd change all the graphics, and, and yeah, that's sort of how it was born. Well, how did they get the Lotus license thing? That was quite a big, big score. It was. I, I suppose it was quite ahead of, ahead of the time um, to, to, to do that. Then um, I'm not. I'm not sure what what, what was involved or, or, or how they got it, but they had it already when we took uh, what what became Lotus. When we took it to them, they already had the license. They'd, I remember having the meeting with them and the, the, them liking the game, and then telling us about the license. And uh, as I said, I put something that looked like a Porsche that wasn't really a Porsche because um, it wasn't official. Uh, but it was nice to have an official license we could use. It, it added a lot, a lot of prestige. Uh, probably the, the only downside to it now is that the license has expired, so we um, we get a lot of calls to put the game out again, uh, and obviously we can't do it without Lotus's permission. So that that's one of the downsides of having that license. But it was a fantastic thing at the time, and it was really exciting to be working with Lotus. And we went to the factory and. Uh, uh, got involved with them quite heavily in the launches and got to drive a Lotus, which at that age was really exciting. Uh, so yeah, it, it was it was a huge thing for me. Well, did you get any extra peaks or anything like uh, you know free car? Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> not. I think one of the one of the directors at Gremlin uh, thought about getting a Lotus and LAN, and they offered a, a, a small discount, uh, uh, which he didn't bother with. Uh, so yeah, there, there, there was nothing. I think we got. Uh, in fact, they were they were actually quite tough. With uh, we got very little. I had to go, I had to go to a dealership in Liverpool to take photos. I think they sent sent us a brochure that had very few photos in. Uh, this is before the professionalism that you'd you'd get now with something like Gran Turismo, where it's it's uh, a completely different scenario. I don't think they really knew what they were doing with us or what we would produce. Uh, so um, a lot of the research I, did, I ended up buying back copies of Auto Car and Car Magazine because I, uh, there was no internet to do research. So I was desperate to find measurements and specs and details. And uh, Lotus did they, they were a bit vague. So um, it, it, it was a learning experience. It, it was the start of, of what became 
uh, you know, common licensing. Uh, it was the start of that. So no one really knew what they were doing. Um, but uh, I, I know that when, when they saw the original game and saw the sales, I think they it started to, they started to realise what it was and what it could do for them. But probably much like uh, Aston Martin with James Bond, uh, going back to, to those days, no one really knows what's going to happen until after you've done it. Well, I heard they even had an Amiga set up in their HQ so like visitors could come in and play. Yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty sure they did. There was uh, there was all sorts of things happening at the time. Um, um, yeah, it, it was um, it, it like I say, it was a learning curve for everyone for, for them. They, they've obviously licensed um, endlessly since then. They've got the, the, their cars in PlayStation and Xbox games. So, uh, but but uh, yeah, um, it, it was a big thing at the time. Well, the second game, Lotus 2, is often regarded as like the, the peak of the series. Did you intend that one to be more of a, an arcade-style gameplay than the original? Uh, yeah, we, we didn't want to just recycle the same game, exactly the same playing experience. We wanted a different style of play, so, so it was more like an outrun-type game, um, just to completely differentiate it from having fuel stops with pit, pit stops. Uh, and people were divided. I, I think... People tend to tend to like that one because on the on the one play you've got the full screen as well. Um, so I, I think possibly people preferred that. And then with the third one, we, we just we, we it was sort of a combination of uh, of uh, both both of the games. So it was it was Lotus One and Lotus Two with the editor bolted on um, for creating your own tracks. So um, we, we always try to add something new something different that they hadn't seen before or some extra value so there was a reason to to buy the the next version well uh barry leach had some fantastic music with it a really pumping kind of soundtrack and uh, i remember he borrowed a sample from uh, yellows oh yeah like um what was he like to work with uh everyone was was great at, um at, at gremlin yeah um that that um I, I think uh, I didn't have that much involvement on on, on uh, Lotus Two with the music. It was it was more uh, would, would you know, give them a rough idea. We um, th- there wasn't a very specific specification to what we wanted. We didn't particularly tell them. Uh, it was just more what they what they came up. They have, have a look at the game and come up with something. Um, but uh, with Lotus Three, I wanted a very specific intro on that. So uh, so I worked with the musician more closely. Um, on on the third one, particularly for the introduction, uh, and 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 also with the, with some of the in between screens, I wanted it to be a bit more tailored. Well, I remember a friend of mine at school. He had like a, well, his dad had an Amstrad PC, and for some reason he thought it was better than an Amiga five hundred. And he had like the PC speaker, you know, the the beepy thing inside. <laughs> and I remember he came around my house. He heard that introduction music to Lotus Two, and he actually his parents got him an Amiga the week after. So. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Amiga was, I mean, it was unbeatable. Like, like the Commodore 64 at the time, that, that that was pretty much the best thing at the time. And the, the Amiga as well, I mean, the ST, we used to do ST versions, but we really didn't care about them. They were an afterthought because it was a much lesser machine. Well, I remember Lotus 2 had, like, sample speech in there as well. Like, you'd have checkpoints and, like, yeehaws when you went yeah, on. Yeah, that, that was me. That, that, oh, really? that, that, that was me. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'd... I, 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 tried all sorts of different accents and versions of that. I think it was a slightly American accent. I'm not sure where we got the idea for doing the speech, but it was something that we we, we tried. I don't think we did it on the, on the third one. It was just the second one. 
Well, a really cool element that Lotus 2 had was uh, the null modem cable where you could basically link up two machines and kind of race on them together. Yeah, again, uh, ahead of its time and, and what's become very commonplace. Uh, and we, we did try it in the, in the offices and it was uh, it was a fantastic experience. And we heard, uh, we heard about people doing it, uh, you know, taking uh, uh, computers around to their friend's house. And uh, we, we did hear quite a few people did it because at first we thought, Who, who's going to bother with this? It's, it's, uh, no one's going to do it. But um, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun if you made the effort. Well, some competitors came around like Jaguar XJ220. Uh, did you kind of see these as rip-offs of Lotus? Uh, I, I suppose it was. I mean, Lotus wasn't wasn't completely original. I don't think anything is. Everything's evolution. But that was a fairly blatant copy. Uh, and I remember reading the review, and I, I remember that it had the... What did they, they did something in it. I think it was the car stereo... Um, so when we did, when we brought the car stereo back, I think in Lotus Three, and when that was reviewed, they said we'd ripped it off from 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 Jaguar, whereas we we actually had it in the first Lotus game, and they copied it from that. And for some reason, we left it out of the second one for probably memory reasons, and brought it back with a third one. Uh, and I remember reading a review of Jaguar saying, "Oh, we'd we'd copied them," uh, I, which was annoying because clearly everything. From the, uh, the 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 concept of the game to things like the fog and the, and the the nighttime driving, which were uh, really quite groundbreaking ideas at the time. They, they were they were things that I tried out and uh, I had ideas for how to do fog and, and got. Uh, I remember Sean animating them uh, and seeing those that those ideas work when, when when we put them together. All those ideas have been copied on Jaguar. It was such a, a groundbreaking game, that second one, in terms of those kind of concepts. I mean, we did, with Lotus 3, that was a final game in the series. I mean, technically it was more advanced, but, I mean, what did you kind of want to do with that third title then? What was the thinking of it? Well, we had lots of mixed opinions about which of the first two games were was the best, so we thought we will have both games in one game, so you've got two different styles of play. Um, and people had always said that they'd like to design uh, tracks uh, and we, we we did start doing a track editor where you would put together corners, and it was uh, it, it started to progress in that way that you'd have a, a like a seventy degree curve, then a straight for this long, and then a ninety degree turn left, and it it, it very quickly to me it, it looked very very boring, uh, and I, I said. Um, uh, why don't we have an idea where we just describe the type of track you want with lots of sliders? Uh, so Sean had to think about that and came up with a way of that, that working. And in, in the end, it was meant to be an, another way of designing courses. In the end, we, we did away with the conventional design and just had the, the system that I think the Gremlin uh, came up with the idea of uh, RECS, which is racing, engineering, construction, something or other. Uh, and and that that was that, that was the the designer. So that added another another aspect to the game. Uh, and it was it was also very ambitious. The downside of that is it slowed down. It, it didn't run as fast as the first game did. But um, yeah, and we we had the futuristic level with lasers, and uh, it, it it was sort of pulling out all the stops, trying to think of everything we possibly could at, at the time. Um, and yeah, uh, I think after that, I think we we felt like like we. We'd used up all the ideas and we'd pushed the technology as far as we could. The third game didn't get as good a reception as the first two. Why do you think this was? Uh, it didn't have the, the originality. Uh, we were recycling ideas, uh, but people did just want more, more of the same. Um, but it, it never had the impact um, because we were essentially covering the same ground in many ways. Uh, and 
the what the there were uh, fewer places to go with the ideas and, and what you could do because uh, uh, Lotus Two did introduce quite a lot of new ideas like the fog of the night time, the weather, etc. And it, there was just a limit to how much you could do, how many ideas you could technically do. Um, and I think uh, we were just running out of ideas and the machine was running out of power and it was starting to run slowly. And it, it, it was worth uh, one more one more version. It was still a big success, but it sold very well. Um, I don't think it sold quite as well as the second one. I think at the time, the second one was Gremlin's most successful game. In fact, I think possibly Lotus was at the time, but I definitely remember Lotus 2 at the time. It was it was hugely successful for them. It was, it was the biggest seller, uh, seller ever. We, we jumped jump ahead a bit uh, when we did the first of the rally games uh, for Europress. Again, that was their biggest seller ever. I think when it, when it was launched, it outsold every other product that they released that year. Well, Lotus 3 also had a um, Lotus concept car in there, the, the M200. That's right, yeah. yeah. Do you remember the story there, and did they kind of keep you in the loop and give you, like, information on new cars? They got cars? very little information on it. I, I don't think I even saw the car. Uh, they just sent some... Um, they, had, they had some photographs taken and sent them to me because it was quite closely based on the uh, Elan. Um, I, I sort of adapted what I had, um, and I think we, we, we pitched it somewhere between the... Uh, Alan and the Esprit for performance and try to make it slightly unique in handling characteristics. Um, but um, yeah, it was it, again, it was just to try and add a, a little bit of extra value. Uh, so yeah, we, we threw it in there just, just to add some interest. Well, Kid Chaos was a fantastic game because I was an Amiga fan and I was constantly looking for that fast, kind of Sonic y platformer style game. Wiz and Liz did it, but. Kid Chaos for me was just absolutely fantastic. Uh, where did that come from, and how was well, it to again, be work it was, on? It was obviously, as you say, Sonic style. It was to have that type of game on the Amiga, so a fast platform game. So it, it did, it did uh, borrow quite a lot from uh, from 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 that and other similar platform games. So it, again, it wasn't the, the most um, original thing, but we, we just wanted to do a version of that type of game, the best the best we could do on the Amiga. We wanted to ideally to be the best platform game on the Amiga. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, 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 was the, that was the main idea behind it. Technically, it was a, it was a huge stretch. We, we, um, I, I, there's, there's all sorts of little things in there that the, a lot of those platform games, they had very monochrome-looking backdrops and it, they, were, they were very, very limited colour palettes. And I, uh, the the Mega Drive was a very colourful machine, and we tried to work out a way to make it as colourful as possible. So I had an idea for um, designing backdrops that I, I I couldn't. They were so colourful that I couldn't even design them in um, uh, deep paint because there, there, there was I had to design them in two sections, and that the backdrops were technically in I think it was. Uh, three colours and a backdrop colour and we, we changed the colours on every raster line and gave the illusion that they were very big multicoloured backdrops and they, I think the the some of them were in over a hundred colours and I had to draw them in sections in bands and there was never more than three colours on one line and um, uh, sure it was so difficult to draw that uh, that Sean did a um, uh, did a special wrote a special program for me that found uh, random colours. So I would draw uh, part the, the mountains in one picture, 
that would that would somehow connect to the second picture that had a field or something in it, and each section would be in in maybe thirty two colours, but there couldn't be more than three colours in one line. And occasionally, I would just I would accidentally add another colour or, or two colours. And Sean did a, a program that would say which line the extra pixel was, and I would have to find the pixel and remove it because you could only have three colours in the background. That was the that was the limit of the technology, but it did give the illusion of these very, very colourful, rich uh, environments. Uh, and the, uh, the, the backdrops were very colourful, but there, there was actually only three colours there. No wonder it took you two years to work on. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a huge it was a huge project. It, it was ridiculously ambitious um, and po- almost pointlessly big. For some reason, I, I had an idea of all the scenarios I wanted, and I probably should have just cut back uh, and limited them because uh, each one was huge. There were three sections to each each one. I think there's a six scenarios. There's a there's a playthrough on uh, YouTube somewhere, um, and it was just huge. Um, and when we eventually took it to Ocean, they they, they thought we'd had a huge teamwork on it, uh, and they couldn't believe it that 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 two people had designed this massive game. Um, and they actually thought it was. They, they, I remember at the time they actually thought it, uh, we showed them a demo, and there's a large group of people. Everyone really liked it. were very impressed and. Uh, someone said, uh, well, it's it's great, but what will the ordinary Amiga version be like? And we said to them, that is the ordinary Amiga version. Uh, that, that's that's how impressive it was at the time. Because I know before that, Gremlin did have a, quite a successful game with Zool that was a platformer game. Because I originally, I remember hearing the Zool music in Lotus 3, so I knew there was some kind of crossover there. But I, I did wonder why Gremlin didn't actually publish Kid Chaos and instead he went to Ocean. What, what was the story there? Uh, well, I think when we started... Kid Chaos, uh, they didn't have Zool and we did expect to put it out with them uh, and I think we'd shown them demos and then they came up with Zool around about the same time and they decided that they were going to have one uh, platform game uh, they were very different games but um, they decided that they were just going to push one platform game so uh, so we, we started talking to other people and Ocean really liked it and um, offered a, a reasonable deal um, with a, with a, uh, an upfront that we were reasonably happy with, and we we obviously expected to get royalties, but that, as I say, that uh, that never happened because of the piracy. And um, but but yeah, it was mainly mainly uh, it didn't go out with uh, Gremlin purely because of Zool. Were there changes made to it because it was considered too violent? Yeah, it was it was originally called Kid Vicious. It, original, a very early version of it had had a little animal character uh it was a mouse character i think i've, I've got the sketches somewhere uh and then it changed uh, and then we ha- we had to keep changing it because uh then there was a worry that, that there was a lot of news at the time about violence being a problem so we had to try and tone it down a little bit uh, and the artwork changed at the last minute so i had to redesign the the um the title screen uh I, it's all a bit vague now but i i do remember it went through a couple of changes and there was uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know whether it was really a problem. I think there was a perception that there might be a problem because what the what was in the press at the time. Yeah, because I think then, like ninety three, ninety four, that was when like you know Mortal Kombat was getting coverage and it was the age ratings came in and everything, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean it was nothing like nothing like as violent as that. I mean you 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 uh, you attacked flowers with a big stick. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was uh, you know it was relatively harmless stuff. So did the demise of the Amiga affect you guys much and magnetic fields? I, I, it was sad to see it go and realise that we weren't going to be doing anything with it anymore. And uh, I, I, I was a bit unsure about the PC at, at the time because um, it was only just starting to become a reasonable games machine. 
um, it, the, the, the first rally game we did on it uh, was um, that that was fairly new technology. Um, uh, I, I think we did we think we did a version of supercars, supercars international. Yeah, yeah, we did. We so we upgraded that. Did a version of that for the PC as a tester. Um, I think that went on a budget label. That might have been with Ocean. Um, and then, yeah, uh, so, so it, it started to become clear that it, it was more of a games machine, but there was that that transition where, where, where I wasn't sure whether it would ever be a games machine, and then it, you started to get the 3D cards and the sound cards, and um, it, it did have some... It, it never seemed... Uh, it never had, I don't know, it never had the same feel of the Amiga. It never seemed as as fun, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously we did we did well uh, with, with those games. Uh, it's really um, most of the money I made in the industry was from those games, so I, I can't really grumble. Well, you did um, international rally championship on the PlayStation, and it was really good 3D for the time. How, how did you find moving into that 3D realm? Um. It, it, it took a bit of getting used to. Uh, it was just finding your feet and t- testing it, um, much like when I started on the Amiga. Um, so um, yeah, there was a lot of. Um, it, 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 t- it took it, it took the longest time to do the the first game. The second game was a lot quicker, um, and then we went in the other direction again with the, with the with the last of the get the, the rally games, and it took it took two years. That there was a, the, the second one was very similar to the first. I, I'm, it was done reasonably quickly, but then the third one took a, took a, another massive leap, and and um, even now that sort of still looks reasonable, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, I always think of the first two as being very similar games, uh, and the third one being being a very different game. Well, those graphics on the first one, though, I mean, you know, comparing it to even something like Ridge Racer, it looked, you know, like streets ahead. Yeah, there, there was there was all sorts of tricks we used. Um, again, we'd always look for tricks, like we did with Kid Chaos. We looked for tricks with um, how how we could make the cars look like there was more polygons from clever colouring. And I remember the walls; we couldn't put tops on the walls, so we used a trick where we used a bl- uh, solid colour on the on the top of the the wall, and then from most angles, it looked like there was a top to the wall, whereas it was, it was really embedded into the side. There was, there was little little tricks uh, that, that you slowly picked up because there was, I can't remember how many polygons were allowed, but it, it was ridiculously uh, few by today's standards. And, uh, so again, you had to be very clever. Um, and that this, the second one, I don't think there was anything significant really in the second one, but we made huge jumps in the way everything was done with the third one. Well, Mobile One Rally Championship, that was, was that your final game then? That magnetic fields. Put it out. was, yeah. We 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 um, we had a, an idea for uh, another game, which, which which was similar, but probably more more like Gran Turismo. It was it was quite an ambitious idea, but, um, and we we actually had a, a, without mentioning any manufacturers, uh, we, we had uh, pretty much agreed a license with someone, uh, and, and it also had a Formula One connection that we were allowed to use. So it was going to be a very very big game. Using all of the, this brand, all, all of their cars from going back to the, uh, I think the 40s, all, right the way through to the to modern times, with a Formula One element, um, very big and ambitious game, and what we we budgeted it, uh, how much it would cost, and and um, uh, it, it was all looking very optimistic, and we were going to move on to that. We we started putting a team together for it, uh, but 
for various reasons I won't go into, we had complications with magnetic fields and how we finished the third game, uh, business contractual problems. So we, we set it up. We set up the next game under a, a new, uh, a new. Uh, we we came up with a new company, Eugenesy. Uh, we called it uh, rather than Magnetic Fields. And the problem with that is when we went to people for funding and to tell them who we were, they knew who Magnetic Fields were, but they didn't know who Eugenesy were, and they they couldn't understand the the, the name change. So despite having pretty much agreed the license and having a good idea and having most of the all, all the best people from the previous team and some other people in mind and um we had everything planned we just couldn't get the the backing for it yeah that did seem a big shame because you know you, you guys seem to be on top form when you know the, the mid to late 90s came around with with those titles and then it just kind of seemed like it all suddenly ended i mean did magnetic fields officially end or um uh, uh, sure and i went our own way uh, and uh, it was complicated. That it was, it was quite a big team that, that that worked on the last rally game, and there was various differences w- uh, with with people. And we sort of formed uh, a sub team that that Sh- Sean and I were obviously the basis of, of the the team. And we we had people that we liked that we worked with, uh, and there were problems with other people as part of that team, which was sort of thrown together. And and uh, as the game went on, we we did what we could to try and get the game completed it was a very difficult development the, the third game because um at the time Europress were, were going through uh financial issues themselves which put strains on us and made everything very difficult so when we got to the end of it there was problems with our within our team uh Sean and i decided that we we would um uh, we wanted to continue and there was people we liked in the team and people we wouldn't use again that we didn't want to work with anymore um but there was contractual issues with the, with the name uh, and various legal problems uh, from uh, that were remained from doing the last game, so we, we just did a clean slate and started again. So, but because we we didn't have the name, we built up quite a, a a strong brand with magnetic fields. Everyone knew magnetic fields. It was it was why um, when we did the first rally game, uh, I remember the the producer um, when we agreed to do it. He, he was then. Uh, he couldn't believe he had the, the team who did Lotus to do the game, and he was sure it would be great. Uh, but uh, we didn't have that when we when we went on to another project. We, we were sort of saying we are we are magnetic fields, but we changed our name, and it made no sense to people. Uh, I think there was suspicion, and it just it, it just fell apart. But uh, we didn't have the name, so um, that that was that was probably the 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 single most significant reason why we didn't do another game where we couldn't get anyone to back back us with a different name well is it true you kind of let your fans distribute old games as long as they're not making any profit nothing official uh and we we we, we do look at possibly re-releasing games uh we've we've uh, a, a couple of times we've we've um sold licenses uh, i think kickstart was only one that really uh people have talked about putting them out we have sold sold some uh, licenses and then nothing's uh, happened with them. Um, I think Kickstart was the only one on the iPhone where someone did put that out. And I've seen Lotus running on the iPhone, but there's the obvious, obvious licensing problems with Lotus. Um, but uh, as long as they're not making a profit, we we generally don't bother too much because uh, it's it's particularly with the, the much older games. Um, so there's some really obscure things that I worked on, like uh, Exadium on the C16. 
that, that you can play online and it's quite nice to see those games live on and uh, it's unlikely they'll ever be commercially viable in any way so as long as no one is making money out of them we tend to look the other way but it, it's possible but we have we are approached from time to time about official uh, versions and official licenses and, and packages people want to do for for uh, whether it's the iPhone or, or other platforms so uh, that that could happen oh, do you have any other plans to upgrade any of the classics like maybe kid chaos hd or something? lotus hd would be good <laughs> uh it's uh, i do think about it quite often uh, i even think about uh bizarre ideas for for commodore 64 games that I, I have a lot of ideas now i'm not really in the industry now and i i still think about it a lot that that's my mind still works in the same way where i'm thinking ideas and concepts uh, and uh, what you could even what you could do on the commodore 64 and how that very restrictive um, color palette and technical uh, spec, how, how that led to certain sorts of games and what you could do there. So I, I, I don't have the time, but, but uh, I, I, I'd possibly be interested in, in, uh, in overseeing something or, or, or doing versions of our games. Um, and, and as I say, we are approached. It, it could still happen. Possibly Supercars is the most likely. There may be an update for that. I, I did see a 3D version of Supercars on a second life I, I saw videos of it on youtube so clearly there's there's a there is a fan base there that wants to see these games develop in some ways so we we did think about doing official versions and upgrades and uh it's it's time issues and whether or not there's a there's a market there for it in terms of timing, I mean, look, the Commodore 64 Mini has just come out as well, hasn't it? So it, it, there is quite a resurgence of interest in that market. Yeah, I, it's, I, I th- it's nice to see it live on because it's a really important part of, of computer game history, particularly the, what, what uh, Britain, Britain's contribution to it and the Commodore 64 and the games that went out then and the Amiga, that, that it's a really important part of computer games history. So I'm glad it lives on and people are still interested in playing those games um, so uh, it, yeah, it, it's 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 nice to still be involved, and, and who knows what might happen. Well, are you sh- you and Sean still in touch, and what are you up to these days? Yeah, we're, we're still in, in touch. Uh, Sean uh, Sean still uh, works in computers. Uh, I I now run a property business, which is something I got into uh, when I was still designing computer games. So uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm into, into a completely different business now. Much more sensible business. Uh, well, that's debatable. <laughs> well, Andrew, listen, we just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing the inside story about some of our all-time favourite games. It's been fascinating talking to you. So thanks for being our guest this week. No problem. You're very welcome. Welcome.